Welcome to Scope It Out. In this edition, guest host Dr. David Petker will be speaking to Dr. Brad Woodworth and Dr. Doyon Cho on their article, In Vitro Evaluation of Aciprofloxacin and Azithromycin Sinus Stent for Pseudomonas Originosa Biofilms. This episode of Scope It Out is made possible by support from Carl Storrs Endoscopy America. Carl Storrs enables anywhere care with the new flexible slimline video rhino laryngoscope. This slimline scope with its portable monitor enables early diagnosis and early intervention to help improve patient care and reduce cost. Visit www.carlstores.com to learn more. Hello and welcome to Scope It Out, the podcast of the International Forum of Allergy and Rhinology. I'm your host, David Petker, and with me today is the dynamic duo from the University of Alabama, Birmingham, Dr. Do-Yun Cho and Brad Woodworth. Guys, thanks very much for joining me. Hi, David. How are you? Hey, thank I'm you doing... for having us. Well, I'm doing well, thanks. Actually, the honest truth is I'm fighting a cold right now, so I had a bad case of the man flu, but I'm on the mend. Doing all right. How are you guys down there? Uh, great. I'm sure it's a lot warmer down here than it is up there. Yeah, it's, uh, I don't know how cold it is, but it's pretty cold. Well, good. Well, I think this is a first. I think this is the first time we've ever had two guests on for Scope It Out. So this is exciting. So let's get right into your paper entitled In Vitro Evaluation of Aciprofloxacin and Azithromycin Sinus Stent for Pseudomonas Aeruginosa Biofilms. How did you guys get interested in this line of research? Well, we're very interested in how can you deliver the drug into the sinus in a very efficient way. So there's actually drug delivery stances available commercially. However, what are the best ways to deliver some other drugs, for example, antibiotics into the sinus cavities? That's how we started. And mm-hmm. then we initially start with the one drug, and then then one drug appears to be is not as efficient as the two drugs, so we, that's why we actually coded two drugs into the stent and see how it's going to help the sinusitis in, in the sinus cavities. Our interest has always been in those really refractory pseudomonas patients. You know, they've, they've had a lot of surgery, they've done rinses, they've done all these different treatments to try and get rid of really thick biofilm-forming uh, pseudomonas sinusitis. We all see these patients in our academic practices. They've had numerous surgeries, and this is really where a lot of the interest ro- arose because we want to find a, a newer and a better treatment to deliver uh, antibiotics topically, especially in the light of uh, the side effects of quinolone antibiotics, and there's now a lot of resistant patterns emerging. If we can get high-dose quinolone-type antibiotics into the sinuses and it's released in a sustained fashion, this is really what our goal is on, uh, on, uh, on all these projects. I went to several meetings and uh, we several like then they actually asked audience what's the next step you wanted to put in the sinuses, and some of the most of a lot of the audience also responded that like we wanted something like put in a ciprodec we just put into the ears we uh-huh. only have zero into the nose but we don't have anything like antibiotic like for example just like antibiotic ear drops which can be used in the sinuses so that's why the idea started yes. Clarify for me. I, I think I have a pretty good idea of a biofilm, but but what, in your minds, what is a biofilm? Well, the biofilm, from my standpoint, is bacteria are also very smart enough that actually they prove, they actually create their own niche, so that actually cover with like thick form that it's very difficult for the other drugs and then other the therapeutic agents get to into penetrate. it. Yeah, penetrate into their envelopes. And that's why it's 
getting more. And then also the inflammation is still there. It doesn't always mean that it definitely it's very difficult to eradicate. So that's one of the causes of the, all the uh, recalcitrant sinusitis, osteitis, of those patients with the worst outcome. So I think that's one of the things that probably one of the things that we're just targeted on. So how does a stent or a topical antibiotic get through that biofilm? You know, so if it's this thick coating that covers the bacteria and, and slows down their metabolic rate, right? How is that any different than a systemic antibiotic or, or something, you know, a pill or, or IV or something? So the idea, Dave, if you think about it from an otologic standpoint, a lot of times people will take a culture of, a, of an ear culture and it'll be resistant to a quinolone or something like that. But in actuality, when you're putting Cipridex into the ear or these other topical antibiotics, you're at very, very high concentrations locally that essentially uh, treat it much higher of the minimum inhibitory concentration. And so the idea behind this is to deliver that type of effect in the sinuses. We originally tried, looked at uh, the ciprofloxacin alone, but it had uh, extensive uh, burst release. We followed this through with preclinical and pharmacokinetic studies in rabbits and then did a treatment as well, it is effective, but we were looking at better ways to slow down a burst release of the ciprofloxacin antibiotic. Yeah, so explain that burst release. So when I read your paper, it almost sounded to me like all the antibiotic was getting washed off very, very quickly as opposed to more slow elution. Is that right? Is that what a burst release yeah. means? That's correct. And if you look at the, the data with intersect stents and the mometazone releasing stents, they actually do have a burst release as well, and a lot of it is already eluded after, what, a, after a week or so? Yeah, right? a week yeah. or so. Based yeah. on the, uh, I, I don't think, uh, the only data I can see from the current right. steroid diluting stent data is, came out from the rabbit study at the same time. When you look at the PL, uh, their HPLC uh, data, also everything released the one week. But I don't want to, like, but whenever we do all the articles came out from biomedical uh, engineering, it's very common. That's the one of the things they want to control that. Like burst release is something very common. If you you just put the simple layer of drugs, anything, any agents, any drugs, any medication, antibiotics, into the one, one stent or any of the liver mechanism. So this is not only for issue with our sinus cavities. Any drugs actually you put it into the stent or anything. It happens everything. That's why the people trying to understand how can we to sustain what is the best way to deliver the drug in a more efficient way, for which means sustain the delivery into the any of the areas. That's one of the key areas for uh, currently is investigating. All right. So, you know, I, I've read many of your past studies. So you've done in vitro release profiles, so you know how the, the Cipro comes off. You've done in vivo tolerance, showing that the, the Cipro doesn't have any negative effects on the cilia. You've looked at in vivo pharmacokinetics, looked at blood levels and things, and, and and then you've also looked at biofilm assays and looked to see and prove that this does actually prevent the biofilm formation. So this study is just building on all of those, correct? Well, this study is actually an offshoot of our the next step that we took from uh, the superfloxacin stent was we were looking at uh, the CFTR potentiator Ivacaftor, which we had thoughts that we could combine the two to develop a novel therapeutic where you have an antibiotic effect, but also using Ivacaftor as a CFTR potentiator, you can stimulate mucus clearance. It stimulates it's a mucociliary clearance activator, which also is one of those problems with when you have a really refractory sinus and a dysfunctional sinus, you're not clearing mucus effectively. 
you get an acquired CFTR type deficiency and dysfunction. And so that was also uh, the thrust of, of some of those studies. And we actually took the Cipro-Ivacaptor stent through to fruition in our recent in vitro or in vivo uh, paper on uh, pseudomonas infection and, and rabbit sinusitis was just published in the International Forum of Virology and Rhinology as well. So when we combine those two, what we found was that if we covered the ciprofloxacin, which is an, it's a water-loving aqueous substance, so it's hydrophilic, okay? And then we used the ivacaptor, which is a hydrophobic drug. We coated the ciprofloxacin with the ivacaptor, and what that does is it actually causes a sustained release over three to four weeks. So we took, we took this all the way to fruition. The issue became the cost of ivacaptor. Ivacaptor is a drug made by Vertex Pharmaceuticals, and the price tag on it is around $300,000 a year, so it's an expensive wow. drug. And so, and of course, maintaining, trying to get the rights for the, them to, to facilitate using the drug in a, in a mm-hmm. stent like this was a problem. So we took the concepts from the Cipro-Ivacaptor stent and said, okay, hey, We've got a hydrophobic, hydrophilic model here. What else could we coat the ciprofloxacin with to, to delay the release or to, to have sustained release? And mm-hmm. so one of the things that we looked at, of course, in this study was that azithromycin is a hydrophobic antibiotic. And as you know, like we all use azithromycin for a lot of our sinus patients. There's a lot of anti-neutrophilic type activity or neutrophilic inflammation. So there's, uh, and there's a lot of people that use it for People are non-eosinophilic type chronic sinusitis. And so we thought it would be a good avenue to substitute for the ivacaptor. And that was the thrust of performing this study to determine could we have the same type of effect with the azithromycin that we did with the ivacaptor. And this actually uh, worked very well. Over four weeks, it had a very sustained release of both drugs. So give us the cliff notes of this study. What did you find with this current project? This is an in vitro study. So we actually give a very similar study we did with the Cipro-Ivacaptor, what the, uh, Brett says. So we actually, first of all, we're actually trying to put those azithromycin stent into, we actually put, the, put in a saline and actually collect the water almost every day and see how much drugs in there. So that's why we're mm-hmm. able to make a release curve and how much drug is coming out of the stand. That's why we take a release curve, that's pharmacokinetics, kind of weigh that how much is going to be released. And then at the same time, we turn to, to looking at the uh, electron microscopy, take a look at the thickness. So how mm-hmm. thick the, uh, whether we got a good coating, make sure that it actually coating is going well. So morphology of the stand and then also the after actually release it 21 days, 30 days later, how the coating looks like afterwards. At the same time, we actually use the Pseudomonas PA1 uh, reference strain to see whether how effective it is to prevent deformation of the biofilm at the same time, the eradication of preformed biofilms by using the azithromycin dual delivery. Now, the PAO1, does that cause uh, biofilms in humans also? Well, it's a laboratory strain that forms biofilms. Okay. Obviously, put that in your your sinus and you had a dysfunctional sinus, you probably set up a pseudomonas sinusitis. But it's a laboratory strain and it's a well-known strain that we can use to form biofilms. And the azithromycin itself, now you explained why you used because it's hydrophobic, we know it's got some anti-inflammatory effects. Is there any anti-pseudomonal effects of azithromycin? Yes, there is. Some studies show that there are also like static, well there's some studies show it definitely do have bacteriocidal effect of the pseudomonas. 
But if the pseudomonas is growing exponentially, they probably require higher MIC. But if the pseudomonas is growing static, they're also the lower MIC, which means easily killed. So definitely they do have the bactericidal effect of the pseudomonas. So that's why a lot of patients with the CF pulmonary disease, they also give azithromycin as a baseline therapies. And also patient of chronic bronchitis, COPDs, that probably working as anti-inflammatory at the same time, they also think that it also has anti-pseudomonal activities by using those long-term dose of the macrolide. As you know, most of the patients get pseudomonas. Right. Interesting. Now, one question I had for you, in the anti-biofilm activity assays, what were the controls? The bear stent was listed as a in the methods as a negative control, but I couldn't find the explanation in the methods as to what is listed as a control. Is that just no stent at all? Yeah, the control is that no stent at all. We just leave it alone. Yeah, as time goes by, those like biofilm or pseudomonas in the lab, actually they die after three or four days later. So that's why we just have to see whether it's something natural effect or not. We also want to make sure the bear stent doesn't have any sort of pseudomonal effect. Yeah. Now, speaking of the bare stents and things, you talk about some of the copolymers that you use. Did you go through all of these? And I know you did some of the past stuff with the Cipro, but like the the ammonium methacrylate copolymers, does that have any kind of ciliary toxicity? Did you look at that specifically? These are the same uh, stents that we've done in a a previous, the same delivery mechanism that we've used in the the pharmacokinetic and tolerability study that we did for the ciprofloxacin stent which Uh had bare stents in them. And so everything was perfect as far as in vivo. There's no change in potential difference of those sinuses. There's no problems with histology Uh and no sinusitis induced either. Now, do you refer to this as the CAS, the ciprofloxacin azithromycin sinus stent, or the (laughs) CAS? I'll go with CAS if you're willing to. Yeah. Well, you know, know if you put in bacitracin, then you could call it CBAS. Seabass, yeah, exactly. Yeah, just think of the marketing potential for that. Yes, a lot of it. There's also called a cos, like cos beer. It's a -A C-A-S-S. I don't know if people call it cos. There's a lot of Dumb and Dumber fans out there for Seabass. Yeah, I think think that's that's what I was going for there. Now, from a practical standpoint, fast forward a few years, how would you see these stints being used? So my preference, obviously, would be for the operated patient, just like yeah. um, we certainly do that in the current case with, with intersex stents. But where I see this would be used is you have someone who, so in otologic surgery, right, so you've got a tube in. You're not going to put a eardrops in the external canal unless they have an external otitis, but you're not going to get into the middle ear without a tube in. And so that's mm-hmm. a very similar uh, situation. We want to make sure that we've got people who have had surgery and they tend to have those like chronic pseudomonal biofilms. You might be able to put this stent in in clinic and release it into like a max ray sinus, which is holding pseudomonas, for example, and hopefully deliver a great local therapy. You know, it wouldn't preclude other therapies at the same time. So it would be an uh-huh. adjunctive type thing. That's how we, and also post-op. So like if you have bring, the, bring a patient for revision sinus surgery who's got a really bad recalcitrant pseudomonas sinusitis or some other quinolone-sensitive infection or even any sort of infection, and you put that into the maxillary sinuses, for example, which is holding a lot of the burden of the pus, or you could even use like a, you can imagine a frontal sinus stent or an ethylene stent to deliver really good local therapy. Especially patients with like osteoiditis and cystic fibrosis patients. And mm-hmm. also, you, you definitely know that this patient's going to be takes a while. And also, you probably patient with actually has to be on steroid, and also as a side effect of the systemic 
fluorochromone side effect because it's caused now the black box warning from FDA, so patients with tendinitis, any kind of yep. tendency, those patients could be a good candidate for that. I mean, we don't want to say that this fits all the yeah, side right, right. Yeah. during chronic sinusitis. Sure, sure. We have to be carefully used for certain really indicated. I would say probably what we just described, those are the kind of patients probably really beneficial from that. Yeah, and Excellent. if you have someone who, like, has a bad response to quinolones where they have issues with their tendons, you know, that's not an allergic reaction. That's a side effect. Right. And so right. This, this will open up treatment with a, a local therapy in patients who uh, can't take a systemic quinolone. Very cool. Well, guys, thanks very much for your time. Before I let you go, though, I do have a, a question for you, trivia question for you. So, Brad, you trained with Rod Schlosser at MUSC. And Rod went to uh, the U.S. Military Academy. And this Saturday is the Army-Navy football game. Uh, yeah. So the trivia question is, when was the first Army-Navy game? Wow. It's got to be in the 1800s sometime, right? Let's go 1892. How about that? Oh, very close. Very close. 1890, November 29th, 1890. Oh, this come is on. the 120th year. When was that? When was that? 1890. I'm taking my naturalization test tomorrow. Hopefully. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Hopefully that won't be in the Dale's going to become an American citizen. Well, good luck on that test, Dale. Guys, thanks very much. Really cool stuff. I really appreciate you taking the time. Thanks very much for joining us. Thanks, Dave. Thank you. Have a great day. Have a great day. All right, you too. Thank you for listening. Scope It Out is a co-production of the International Forum of Allergy and Rhinology and Wiley. All opinions in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of Wiley or of the sponsors.